Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. It's good to be back, and the Supreme Court is back, too, with the busiest week we've seen from the justices in the last couple of weeks. Uh, We had oral arguments and opinions. The court heard only two oral arguments this week, but they were big ones, involving the scope of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. Now, Section 230 has been the subject of a lot of debate recently because it provides broad immunity to many tech companies. It bars claims that seek to hold providers of, quote, interactive computer services, which are websites like YouTube and Google, liable as the publisher or speaker of any content that the service did not create or develop. In other words, if a website is simply hosting third-party content, it generally cannot be sued for what's contained within that content. Both of the cases the court heard arguments in this week, one involving Google and the other involving Twitter, involve family members of terror attack victims who are bringing claims under the Anti-Terrorism Act, the ATA, against Google and Twitter. In Twitter versus Tomna, the family of an individual killed during a 2017 ISIS attack on a nightclub in Istanbul sued Twitter for allowing ISIS to use its platform. The Anti-Terrorism Act allows suits against anyone who aids and abets by knowingly providing substantial assistance to international terrorists. The family contends that Twitter meets this requirement because it knew ISIS was using its platform and it didn't take sufficient measures to kick them off. Twitter contends that someone can only be held liable under the ATA when it provides substantial assistance for a specific act of international terrorism, a specific bombing, for instance. The Biden administration takes a slightly broader view of the ATA than Twitter, but generally agrees that something more than generalized support to a terrorist organization through the provision of widely available services, such as Twitter, is necessary to support a claim under the ATA. Now, in the other case, Gonzalez versus Google, the family of an individual killed in a 2015 ISIS Parisian terrorist attack sued Google and other tech companies in the lower courts under the ATA based on Google allowing ISIS to post recruitment videos on YouTube and recommending ISIS videos to users based on its algorithm. Google has asserted Section 230 as a defense to liability. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals largely agreed with Google on this point, but the Gonzalez family is urging the Supreme Court to hold otherwise, especially where, as here, a company uses its algorithm to make content recommendations on the grounds that the information would not be provided by someone else. At the oral argument in the Google case, the justices had a spirited back and forth not only on the appropriate scope of Section 230, but also on whether Congress should be the appropriate institution, rather than the court, to step in and adjust its scope. Justice Elena Kagan even quipped that the justices, quote, are not like the nine greatest experts on the Internet. (laughs) Of course, the justices could decide the Google case without ever reaching the Section 230 issue. As Justice Amy Coney Barrett brought up, depending on how the justices resolve the scope of the ATA issue in the Twitter case— which is also at issue in Google's case, the justices might not even have to resolve the Section 230 question. This is a very interesting set of cases, and depending on what the justices do, particularly with the Section 230 question, it could have broad implications for many tech companies and for how we as Internet users interact with these services. On to opinions. Uh, This term, the Supreme Court has been very slow to issue opinions, but we got three this week. In addition, we may have gotten a hint as to the reason behind the court's slowdown. Let me start with that point. As you probably know, newer justices tend to be assigned the lower profile, less contentious, less complicated cases. Because of that, it is usually the newer justices who author the first opinions released each term. Sure enough, the opinions released so far this term are not high profile, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett has authored half of them. But now we also have opinions by Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, not new justices by any means, which raises a question, where is Justice Jackson? 
Cases have been assigned to her to write, likely the low-profile unanimous variety, and yet we have no opinions from her. When she was a district court judge, she was very slow to issue opinions. Uh, Her opinions tended to be far longer than was probably necessary, which may have contributed to that. Um, Perhaps she's continued those habits and they're slowing down the Supreme Court. Well, it will be very interesting to watch and see when Justice Jackson's first opinion comes out, if it is uh, very lengthy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, without further ado, here are the opinions from this week. Starting off was Barton Werfer versus Buckley. This was a unanimous decision by Justice Barrett, where the court held that a bankruptcy code rule that forbids the discharge of debt from money obtained by fraud extends to cases where the debtor, him or herself, did not personally commit the fraud. So here are the facts. A husband and a wife sold a home, and the husband committed fraud during that sale, but the wife didn't know about it. The buyer sued and won a judgment against both the husband and the wife. The husband and wife declared bankruptcy. Now, that can render some debts dischargeable, but under the bankruptcy code at issue here, not any debts that result from fraud. Now, because the husband committed fraud, the debt was definitely not dischargeable as to him, but the wife did not commit fraud. So the question was, was her share of the judgment dischargeable? And the court said, no, it was not. What matters is how the money was obtained, not who committed the fraud. Next up, we have Cruz versus Arizona. This case was a 5-4 split decision written by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, joined by the Chief Justice and Justices Kagan, Kavanaugh, and Jackson. The court held that a case called Lynch versus Arizona was a significant change in the law such that a criminal defendant who had been sentenced to death should have been given an opportunity under Arizona's rules of criminal procedure to file for post-conviction relief. The background of this case is a little complicated, but it starts with a case from 1994 called Simmons, where the court held that if a defendant faces the death penalty, in part because the state argues that he is dangerous, if his alternative sentence would be life without the possibility of parole, then the jury must be made aware of that fact. After Simmons, Arizona's Supreme Court took the position that the state's capital sentencing scheme didn't implicate that decision, but in Lynch v. Arizona, a 2016 case, the U.S. Supreme Court disagreed. Arizona has a rule of criminal procedure that allows a defendant to file for post-conviction relief if there was a significant change in the law. He argued, and the court agreed, that Lynch represented a significant change. Justice Barrett, joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, dissented on the grounds that Lynch did not change the law. It only changed the application of the law. And what's more, they said the court's job is to determine only whether the Arizona Supreme Court's decision is defensible, which in their view, it was. Last up was Helix Energy Solutions versus Hewitt. This opinion was written by Justice Kagan, joined by the Chief, and Justices Thomas, Sotomayor, Barrett, and Jackson. We have already gotten some really interesting splits just in four opinions. The court held here that employees paid on a daily rate qualify as salaried employees only if the statutory definition of salaried employees is satisfied. It doesn't ultimately matter how much the employee makes. So in this case, Hewitt was a daily wage employee, but he made more than $200,000 a year and said that he also should have been entitled to overtime. But the company said that he was effectively a salaried executive, not entitled to overtime. The court disagreed because he did not meet the precise definition of salaried. A salaried in this case does not apply to uh, people who receive wages on a daily basis. So uh, Mr. Hewitt can get overtime on top of his $200,000 earnings, lucky for him. Justice Gorsuch dissented on the basis that there was a preliminary question that the court actually wanted to decide when it granted certiorari, which was which of two regulations or both apply to decide the question of whether a highly paid employee uh, is an executive who is um, uh, exempt from overtime. This case didn't actually squarely present that question after all the briefing was done, so he said that the court should have dismissed it as improvidently granted. Justice Kavanaugh, joined by Justice Alito, dissented on the basis that because Hewitt was paid more than twice the minimum weekly amount for any bona fide executive, it didn't matter whether his pay was calculated daily or on a salaried basis. He simply made too much money to qualify for overtime. And that'll bring us to our interview this week right after this. 
As conservatives, sometimes it feels like we're constantly on defense against bad ideas, bad philosophy, revisionist history, junk science, and divisive politics. But here's something I've come to understand. When faced with bad ideas, it's not enough to just defend. If we want to save this country, then it's time to go on offense. Conservative principles are ideas that work. Individual responsibility, strong local communities, and belief in the American dream. As a former college professor and current president of the Heritage Foundation, my life's mission is to learn, educate, and take action. My podcast, The Kevin Roberts Show, is my opportunity to share that journey with you. I'll be diving into the critical issues that plague our nation, having deep conversations with high-profile guests, some of whom may surprise you. And I want to ensure freedom for the next generation. Find The Kevin Roberts Show wherever you get your podcasts. Well, today we are joined by Professor Gail Harriet of the University of San Diego School of Law. Professor Harriet is one of the nation's leading scholars on the law and use in public policy of race. Uh, among other things, she is a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights and was instrumental in leading the push in California to ban the use of race in university admissions and in successfully preserving that ban against an effort to repeal it. She has written extensively about racial preferences and has served as the author and editor of a collection of essays on the subject called A Dubious Expediency, How Race Preferences Damage Higher Education. Professor, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. So, Professor, I have to first say it's an honor to have you on the show. I have been reading your scholarship for years, uh, so it is a personal pleasure of mine. And I wanted to start off very at the very beginning what what sparked your interest in law at all well you know i didn't have any lawyers in my family so i didn't come to it that way uh but i always loved issues of public policy um and law is one of many areas that 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 allows one to work on public policy issue but my other big love in the world i guess is musty old books <laughs> and law kind of comes at the intersection of public policy uh and musty old books um so i think that was the right the right choice for me uh and i've now been a lawyer for many many decades what uh, first sparked your interest in the law of race in particular well that came a little bit later um, I started um, as an assistant professor of law uh, at the University of San Diego back in 1989, and race preferences were already in full swing in admissions policy by then. It was already, you know, more than 10 years past the Bakke decision um, and 20 years past the first such programs. And to me, looking at it, first of all, it seemed to be a, a clear problem about the rule of law. Uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was clearly intended uh, to ban um, race preferences uh, in admissions at, at, at federally funded uh, colleges and universities, and almost all of them are federally funded. Um, and so that seemed to me to be a big problem, not just the law, but also a violation of our principle um, of non-discrimination. And, you know, that was, that was a, 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 a clear danger signal to me. But on top of that, what I was seeing um, at the law school was that it wasn't working. Uh, it wasn't doing what those who advocated race preferences hoped it would do. It was not benefiting the students who were the supposed beneficiaries. When you say it doesn't work, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that um, is that we would have more African-American scientists, more African-American physicians, dentists, um, veterinarians, um, more African-American engineers, uh, and probably more African-American college professors and lawyers um, if colleges and universities engaged in race-neutral uh, admissions policies rather than giving preferential treatment uh, to members of, of underrepresented minorities. Um, and what I mean by that um, is that students thrive where they are in a position to compete effectively. Uh, and that means students should go to the school where their academic credentials put them in the same ballpark uh, with other students. Um, and race preferential admissions uh, do the opposite of that. They make sure that, that underrepresented minority students will be clustered towards the bottom um, of the, the, um, 
the academic credentials, the entering academic credentials, and that pretty much assures that they will also cluster towards the bottom uh, with regard to their, their performance in that school. Now, of course, some students outperform their entering credentials, just as some students underperform theirs, but most students perform in the general range that their academic credentials suggest. And what the research has, has, has uncovered um, is that you actually would have more student success um, if we engaged in race-neutral uh, admissions. We could have more African-American scientists, you know, as I said, physicians, dentists, vets, uh, engineers, um, if those students had been going to a school where they would be able to compete effectively. Um, and that, that's important. I mean, I don't think anybody would be in favor of race preferential admissions if they understood the notion that, hey, this is not helping the very students we're trying to help the most. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's, that to me is the biggest deal here. Uh, I think it's something that everybody should be able to agree on, uh, but we're having some trouble getting everyone to agree <laughs> on that. So let me play devil's advocate for a moment. There was uh, a, a very influential book published in uh, 98 by William Bowen, former president at Princeton, and Derek Bach, former president at Harvard, called The Shape of the River, uh, that purported to show that contrary to your work and the work of others like uh, professors Stephen and Abigail Thernstrom, Richard Sander, and uh, Peter Archidiakono, that racial preferences actually do help the minorities that they target. Uh, and that this uh, mismatching effect is not actually a problem. What do you make of that book and that research? Well, it actually came before the work of, of, of Richard Sander um, and, and the others that have been working on this area. Um, and, you know, I think the book has to be taken seriously. Uh, but there are a lot of flaws in the analysis in that book. Um, and if you actually look very carefully uh, at their data, especially the data in the appendices, it actually supports um, the mismatch thesis. Um, and so I, I think that, that we really can't take it seriously um, as, as proof that race preferential admissions are benefiting um, black students and, 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 and Latino students. Um, and so I, I think we've gotten beyond that. We've gotten much more sophisticated research since then. Uh, now, mm. not all the research comes out exactly the same way, uh, but I think... Um, that even many of the people that are strong supporters um, of race preferences have had to concede that at the very least in the areas of science and engineering, and let's face it, that's where the great jobs are these days, um, that race preferences have seriously hurt the ability of African-American and other underrepresented minorities uh, in their ability to compete, and that we have fewer uh, black scientists and engineers, et cetera. Uh, than we would have had otherwise. Uh, so I think we should be beyond uh, the shape of the river at this point. Um, okay. there's, there's plenty of research since then. Now, oh, and uh, let me say one more thing, and that is if you want to get a better sense of why I think that the shape of the river was wrong and why the, the um, data in that book actually supports mismatch, you'll need to read an essay that I have written um, that's part of, of, of a dubious expediency, mm -hmm. the book that I recently edited. Uh, I think that'll give you a better sense. But if I had to tell you right now, we'd be here for 10 hours. <laughs> On this subject of uh, the book Dubious Expediency, it collects essays laying out uh, not only your arguments, but many other arguments against racial preferences. Uh, but before we get into those, where does that title come from? Ah, good question. Um, that is, is a homage to Justice Stanley Mosk. He was a... a a justice on the California Supreme Court at the time of the Bakke decision. Um, as you know, the Bakke decision was a Supreme Court decision in, in, in 1978, but before that, it was before the California Supreme Court. Stanley Mosk was definitely a liberal, um, he, he, but he was very active in the civil rights movement. Uh, he was a strong supporter uh, of eliminating Jim Crow and of, of adopting the Civil Rights Act of 1964. He did a lot on these issues before he became a judge and when he was a judge. Um, and yet, um, although we think of him as being on the left, um, men of that generation, men and women of that generation uh, who worked for, in the civil rights movement, 
um, and were these issues were important to them. They were in favor of race-neutral admissions, and the California Supreme Court's decision came down very firmly on the side um, of, of Alan Bakke. Um, and Justice Mosk wrote that opinion, and he called race preferential admissions a dubious expediency. So we took that, uh, my, my co-editor and I, uh, my fellow professor here at the University of San Diego, Maimon Sportschild, we took that and made that the title of our book. Well, it seems to me that uh, today you don't have as many uh, very prominent intellectuals on the left who are opposed to racial policies as you did uh, back in Justice Mosk's day. Am I right about that? And if I am, why do you think that is? Yeah, you're dead right on that. Um, I think part of that is is that um, the the general culture now um, makes it very difficult for anybody who considers themselves left of center um, to come out in favor of race-neutral admissions. Uh, there are some. There are some. But if you look back um, to Stanley Moss' generation, uh, there were lots of them. There were lots of them. You know, the, the, the position of the left was that race discrimination was, was morally wrong um, and that it should stop. And it wasn't just Stanley Mosk. Uh, on the Supreme Court, Justice William O. Douglas. No one has ever accused <laughs> William O. Douglas of being a conservative. Let me tell you that. But he was very firm, very firm, um, that discrimination against whites and Asians, um, although I guess Asians wasn't really a, a part of the topic at the time, but discrimination in any direction was morally wrong and illegal, uh, and he was not afraid to say so. That was also true of academics of that era. Uh, one of my colleagues at the University of San Diego, uh, Professor Carl Arbach, uh, he is deceased now, but he did make it to age 100 and almost to age wow. 101, very much a man of the left, uh, but of that generation, uh, and he was adamant that race preferential admissions uh, were corrupting academia, uh, that they should stop. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, what's interesting, it wasn't just issues of race, but also issues of free expression. Um, these, you know, people of that generation um, were against race discrimination, and they were very much for free expression. You know, they were... Um, in some sense, they were progressives, but they were also, they still had a, a link to classical liberalism that I think has died on the left now. Um, that word liberal uh, really doesn't fit uh, the current uh, progressive movement at all. Um, and instead, people who are liberal in outlook, who are in favor of, of race neutrality uh, and are in favor of free expression, tend to regard themselves either as conservatives or, or maybe as fellow travelers. Uh, the word classical liberal has gotten popular again. Um, and you know, it, there's a real generational shift on the left. Um, and I think it's disturbing. Hmm. Besides your own argument on the mismatch effect uh, in dubious expediency, can you summarize for us some of the other arguments made by uh, your co-authors? Yeah. You know, my colleague on, on the Commission on Civil Rights, Peter Kersenow, he wrote an article that's in the anthology that's about campus separatism. Uh, and what he's saying, and I think he's right on this, um, is that as a result of race preferential admissions, where you get sort of an academic mismatch, uh, there's a tendency for students to group themselves by race on campus so that you get separate student lounges, uh, safe spaces for, for students. You get separate... Um, you know, dormitories, separate graduation ceremonies. And I think all of this is, is utterly contrary to what we were trying to, to accomplish with race preferential admissions. The whole point of this is to help integration along, you know, to help uh, jumpstart the careers um, of underrepresented minority students into the economic mainstream. And it's backfiring in so many ways, not just the mismatch way that I was talking about with regard to careers, but also just to, to campus integration. Um, I think if we had race-neutral admissions, where we had more equality and academic credentials, you would be getting much more integration on campus. Uh, and instead, we're getting this campus separatism, this self-imposed segregation uh, that, again, is quite disturbing. 
So that's one of the essays and one of the arguments against race preferential admissions. There's also a, 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 an essay in the book um, that was written by Lance Azumi and Rowena Ichikon uh, about how Asian Americans are special victims of all of this. Um, Asian Americans tend to do quite well in terms of their academic credentials. Um, and so it is harder for an Asian American student, um, particularly a Chinese or Korean American student, uh, to get into an elite uh, institution, even harder than it is for white students. Uh, they're held to a, a higher, a higher, um, a higher standard than others. And, you know, this is obviously deeply wrong. Um, and it is alienating um, students, um, and it's unfair to those students. And I think the notion that we would be, be discriminating against um, Asian Americans in, in, in um, higher education um, is a, a profound problem, uh, and it's got to stop. Uh, that's part of what the case before the Supreme Court uh, will be about. The Harvard case right, focuses right. especially on Asian Americans. Uh, the University of North Carolina case, which has been paired with it, does not. That is not a case that, that features Asian Americans in particular. Um, but the, the, the profound discrimination against Asian Americans is something that we have to address. A moment ago when we were talking about the shape of the river, you mentioned how uh, so much research done after the fact has cast a lot of doubt on that book and revealed how it actually – its data actually support uh, the thesis that it was trying to discredit. Uh, and yet the shape of the river is cited in at least 15 amicus briefs in the Harvard and USC uh, cases. Are you surprised by that? Um, what do you make of that? Well, what I can say initially is congratulations on bothering to go through and counting. Uh, that's pretty interesting. I, I did not know that it had been cited that many times. But I think that's a sign of our times, um, that we are, are siloed. Um, and this is, this is one of the reasons um, that it's disturbing um, that on campuses these days, if you look at faculty, um, like 90% of them um, are left of center. Uh, there are very few conservatives on most campuses these days, um, and there's a problem. You know, they're 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 reading things uh, written by people that are on their side already. And to be frank, conservatives can be guilty of this too. Um, so you know, we need to be better um, in our ability to address the arguments being made on the other side. I do think the left is more guilty of this uh, than the right, but you know, we should all be careful uh, to make sure that we're looking. Um, at at viewpoints on the other side. What are your thoughts on how, how we might expect those two cases to come down? Oh, you don't want to rely upon me for for, <laughs> for predictions. You know, I was in in college when the Baki case was being argued, and I was taking a course in constitutional law. wasn't even yet in law school, and I was pretty confident um, that the Supreme Court was going to come down very firmly. Uh, on the side of Mr. Baki. And to, you know, mm -hmm. to be fair, the decision actually did come out in favor of Mr. Baki, but it was written in such a way uh, that it was very easy for colleges and universities to get around. You had four mm -hmm. justices uh, very firmly on Mr. Baki's side, four justices very firmly um, on the side of, of, of the university, and, and one justice, the man in the middle, Lewis Powell, who wrote a wishy-washy opinion that said, yeah, we're going to go with, with Baki, but he made it very clear how colleges and universities could completely get around uh, right, that right. particular decision. So I called that one wrong, and then in 2003, when the University of Michigan cases came out, Grutter and Grotz, again, I was confident and no, I turned out to be wrong. It looked like a split decision with you know one win for 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 Ms. Grotz, but a, a loss for for Ms. Grutter, um, a win for the university. Uh, but really, again, it was just dead easy to get around the Grotz case. The Grutter case was what mattered, and, and we lost that one. So I I didn't get that one right. Um, I was a little bit less confident with the Fisher cases a few years back. Um, I am very optimistic, but like, don't count on me. Right. 
So speaking of uh, universities getting around uh, these decisions, you mentioned last year at a Federalist Society panel that uh, if the court prohibits the use of race in admissions in these cases, schools will again try to skirt the court's ruling and do it one way or another anyway. Uh, How do you think that they might try to do that going forward, given, of course, that we don't know uh, the outcomes of these cases? Yeah, well, if we assume that it's going to be a very strong decision um, in, in, in favor of requiring race neutrality, um, you can be sure that, that there will be efforts by colleges and universities to get around it. For a lot of, of people that work in this area, in the admissions offices, um, you know, the, the administrators on campuses, I'd have to say this is almost a religion for them. This is the most important thing in the world, and they will do everything they can uh, to try to come up with a way around it. We know this happened in California uh, when Proposition 209 was passed and made part of the state constitution. It prohibited state universities from engaging in, in, in race neutral, I'm sorry, in race preferential uh, admissions. Um, but the schools tried very hard to get around it. They couldn't entirely get around it, but what they did is they, they, they first went for, well, we'll give preferential treatment based on socioeconomic status. Uh, and that's perfectly permissible under the law. Uh, a university that would want to give an extra bump um, to students who come from more deprived backgrounds, there's, there, there would be nothing to forbid that. But the schools would try to reverse engineer um, the, the, the formula such that it would pick up um, you know, less well-off uh, African-Americans, Latinos, American Indians, but it wouldn't pick up less well-off whites or Asians. Um, and you know, that's a problem. We're gonna, if we're going to give preferential treatment based on, on socioeconomic status, um, then it ought to be done in a race-neutral way, and it should not be done in such a way uh, to exclude those um, who are not from um, the preferred races. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm confident that that's, that's what's going to happen, that and many other ways to try to get around it. Um, and so the, no matter how strong the opinion is, we're going to have a lot of work to do to make sure uh, that fairness reigns. Recently, a number of law schools, particularly at the very top, uh, have abandoned the US, U.S. news ranking system. And some people have speculated that it's because they want more flexibility to give racial preferences. What do you make of that? Is that, that does that argument sound true to you? I would be willing to bet a bucket of blood on that, that that's a very <laughs> significant part of the motivation. And how does that work? They are anticipating that the Supreme Court is going to make, is going to make it more difficult for them to engage in race preferences and that they are going to have to do things like de-emphasize the LSAT, de-emphasize grades, um, and emphasize other things um, that are not academic um, in orientation, and that therefore their standing under U.S. News would would fall, and therefore they want to opt out of U.S. News. Um, So that's that's what I think is going on, and I am relatively... I'm very certain that that's at least a significant part of the motivation here. Now, in several articles, you've uh, argued that college accreditors are part of the problem that drives an incentive to engage in race preferences. Can you explain how? Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, as as many people know, uh, colleges and universities have to be accredited uh, if they want to receive federal funding. Um, and so there are a number of different accreditors that accredit different kinds of schools. There's one for law schools, one for medical schools, one for arts and sciences schools, which tend to be, be regional. Um, and, you know, for all the different kinds of schools, uh, there are accreditors. And the way they, they work today is that they're essentially um, cartel enforcers, um, that most schools want to engage in racial preferences, but there are a few schools that don't, um, very few, um, and there are some schools that don't mind engaging in racial preferences to a certain extent, but they don't want to take it to what they regard as extremes. And all over the country, there are academics 
who fall into all these categories. There are the ones that really do want to take it to extremes. There are the ones that, you know, want to be moderate and then the ones that don't want to do it at all. Um, and, you know, they're found in different numbers at different schools. And what accreditors have been doing over the last few years is forcing schools um, to engage in more and more um, race preferences. Um, and a good example is the law school at George Mason University in Northern Virginia. I think it was about 15 years ago now, maybe a little bit more than that, that they were up for reaccreditation, which happens every seven years. Um, and that school was known for having a, a, a more conservative than average faculty. Um, they had ideological diversity there too, uh, but definitely George Mason uh, as a law school, not as a university, is more conservative than most. Um, and some of the members there were not in, interested in, in race preferences at all. Some wanted to do it only to a very small level. And the ABA's accrediting arm um, told them they weren't doing enough uh, and that they needed to engage. Uh, they needed to have more uh, underrepresented minority students. And if that meant they had to lower standards, um, then they would have to lower standards for, for those students. And it, it was really you know, a ghastly situation. Um, in that, yeah, George Mason had to lower the requirements for LSAT and, and college grade point average in order to attract the number of minority students that the ABA kept insisting that they have. And it kept going back and forth and back and forth. You know, have we done enough? No, you haven't done enough. Have we done enough now? No, you haven't done enough. And they were seriously threatening George Mason's accreditation. Um, and so, of course, Mason did what it had to do. Um, it further lowered its standards, um, and finally they, they got the okay on their reaccreditation. And guess what happened? Uh, the students who were let in under these lower standards, um, they did not succeed. And the dean at the time, a guy by the name of Dan Polsby, uh, wrote to the ABA and said, look, you know, this is what you're doing. This is what you're causing. Um, but they haven't stopped doing that. I have done Freedom of Information Act sweeps in the past of law schools and of medical schools. And I have found that many schools um, are under pressure um, from these accreditors uh, to engage in more race preferential admissions um, and to engage in more preferential treatment in faculty hiring. Um, and it's a problem. And I think the only way to deal with that um, is for Congress to act, uh, for Congress to say, look, um, the racial composition of classes um, and the racial composition of faculties is not within the purview of accreditors. They have to let the schools do, you know, what they what they want to do within the law, um, and it should be outside the jurisdiction of accreditors um, to to overrule a school on that. The school's job is to act within the law, um, and we'll have to see what the Supreme Court thinks the law is um, later this year. So to shift gears slightly, uh, you had mentioned early on in our interview about how uh, increasingly today there are fewer liberal intellectuals who uh, resist identity politics and who support free expression. Uh, and in an interesting article that's coming uh, – going to be published in the Texas Review of Law and Politics called The Roots of Wokeness, you argue that part of this problem may be attributable to the compensatory and punitive damages remedies of Title VII, uh, which prohibits race discrimination in employment. Can you give us an overview of that argument? Oh, boy, that's a can of worms here. Let me try <laughs> here. A lot of people don't realize that in 1964, when Title VII was first passed – um, you could not get um, you could get damages for the emotional distress of being being discriminated against uh, in employment. Uh, the law was limited to two possible remedies: injunctions or lost wages. So, if if you were discriminated against, uh, you could get a court to order that you be hired. Or if it was a promotion issue or an equal pay issue, they could order that you be promoted or order that you be paid. Uh, on an equal basis from other with other employees, uh, or if you'd been fired on account of your race, color, uh, religion, sex, or national origin, uh, they could order that you be reinstated. 
Uh, and if you lost wages as a result of having been fired or not being hired or not being promoted, then you could get compensation for the lost wages. But you couldn't get punitive damages uh, and you couldn't get damages for emotional distress. It wasn't until 1991 that the law was amended to allow much more in the way of money damages. Um, and, you know, there were caps on it, but, you know, it, it was still a, a lot of money. Um, and when that happened, oh boy, employers panicked. You know, during that period between 1964 and 1991, um, the law had developed to also include as a violation of, of Title VII, racial or sexual harassment. Those words don't actually appear um, in, the, in the act itself, but I think probably properly, um, courts determined that yes, you know, under certain circumstances, and they weren't always great at defining what those circumstances would be, um, there should be a cause of action under Title VII for harassment, but they, they defined it very loosely. They didn't really, you know, they didn't really come to terms with the notion that we need to know what, what is harassment and what isn't. And part of the problem was one form of harassment, what they called hostile environment, was defined cumulatively. Um, and that meant um, that, for example, if you, you know, if, if, if a woman is being harassed on the job, it could be, you know, somebody tells an off-color joke, somebody else keeps calling her darling, somebody else keeps, you know, looking at her uh, for too long, and there you were know, various little things. And the courts were saying this can add up to harassment, even though no individual does anything that's that terrible. Um, and that's what caused employers to panic when suddenly they could get punitive or emotional distress damages, uh, because it wasn't just going after you know, really bad actors. Uh, it was going after some things that you might otherwise think of as, well, you know, it's small in itself. And it is small in itself. So, man, they, they were like panic-stricken. They start having training courses, you know, here are all the things you're not supposed to say about mm -hmm. race or about, about sex. Um, and employees everywhere had to start undergoing the, the, these training courses. And it became a big business. And as it became a big business, um, the trainers have to come up with new things that you're not supposed to say. Uh, otherwise, they're afraid that they're going to be considered old hat. And they're not going <laughs> to, the business isn't going to keep going. Um, so you start getting concepts like microaggressions, um, and the, the businesses were, were, were advertising, you know, it's not just things that, you know, all civilized people know not to say and not to do. It's also things that you never would have dreamed were offensive. And suddenly uh, everybody's being trained into to walking on eggshells. And over long periods of time, that changes the culture. Um, and I think many people who are, are left of center have taken all this training uh, to heart. Um, and now we're told that not only, you know, is it offensive uh, to use racial epithets or to, to assume things about uh, members of a racial minority that are, that are, you know, as stereotypes, that saying things like, I believe um, that the person who's best qualified should be the one who gets the job or the promotion, you know, we're now being trained that that's offensive. Um, and, you know, that's got to stop. Uh, we need to be able to freely talk about the ideas um, that are important to setting good policy. Uh, and instead, I think particularly people who are left of center um, are not willing to do it. But it's not just people who are left of center. It's also true that conservatives and libertarians uh, have failed um, to, to speak up. Um, and I think that our, our dialogue on these issues has become impoverished as again, everybody uh, feels that they have to walk on eggshells. And I believe um, that had that 1991 act never been passed, that we'd be in a very different position right now. That the fact that employers everywhere became so panicky and so worried about liability has contributed hugely to the position that we're in right now. Hmm. So in that piece, you write uh, that culture affects law, but that sometimes, in this case, uh, for example, law affects culture too. With um, 
those two sides of the coin in mind, what does victory look like to you in the context of the law and culture of race in America? Um, that's an excellent question. Um, and, you know, I do want to emphasize the point that, that sometimes um, people forget the add-on that, you know, sure, culture affects law, but law affects culture, um, especially over long periods of time. And, and my, my biggest example of that would be the 1991 Act's um, damages provision, but race preferential admissions as well. I mean, over time, the Bakke decision, the Greta decision, the Gratz decision, you know, they have, by allowing uh, race preferential admissions policies to continue, uh, have caused people on campuses to have to walk on eggshells as well. Uh, but what's going to happen if the Supreme Court does what I, I predict they will do, but again, I said, my predictions are not worth a heck of a lot. Uh, but if they do, in fact, come down hard um, on race discrimination, even when it's against uh, whites and against Asians, if they do that, um, we're still going to have a lot of work to do because there are going to be a lot of people who are unconvinced. Um, and over time, I think that if schools do, in fact, obey the law, um, I think we're going to start seeing that integration works out much better than it has been up to now, that we will be getting more minority scientists, more minority physicians, more minority engineers. We will start wearing away at that campus separatism uh, mm -hmm. when students have a lot in common in terms of their academic pursuits, when that's what they have in common instead of, instead of race. Um, there's going to be much more in the way um, of healthy integration. But it's going to take some time, um, and we're going to have to work on it. It's going to have to be something that 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 we work to make happen. Um, and I'm crossing my fingers that we can do well on this. But let's remember um, that it's going to take some time, just as it took a long time for the 1991 Act to work its 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 um, its ill effects. I think on the public, it's going to take some time uh, to get people on board with race neutral is really best. These are things worth working and hoping for. Professor, it has been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for the time. Well, thanks so much for having me. All right, Zach, you have had a good long break from trivia, but I am delighted Not to say that it, <laughs> it's over. Are you ready for this week's trivia? Absolutely not, but let's do it anyway. All right. So this week's trivia is about movies that have made their way into Supreme Court opinions. All right, let's do it. Number one, in a concurring opinion in Glossop versus Gross, a case claiming that the Eighth Amendment's cruel and unusual punishments clause forbids the use of the lethal injection, Justice Scalia cited this movie for the proposition that these sorts of cases come to the court over and over and over again. You know, I think this movie could also be applicable to trivia, GC. It just keeps coming <laughs> around again and again and again. Uh, but I think Justice Scalia uh, cited Groundhog Day uh, in that opinion. Yes, that is right. That is right. And um, uh, just like Groundhog Day, trivia is a, a joyful thing to do every every week, Zach. So I, I don't see why that's a criticism. We'll, 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 we'll go with that, GC. We'll go with that. <laughs> All right, number two. In Virginia versus Black, a First Amendment case about cross burnings, Justice O'Connor cited this movie as evidence that cross burnings are associated with the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I don't recall exactly, but the movie that comes to mind is Mississippi Burning. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, that is a 1988 film loosely based on the investigations into the Freedom Summer murders. Hmm. In that same opinion, number three, uh, Justice O'Connor also cited another movie uh, for that proposition. This one was almost 100 years old at the time, 2003. What movie is that? I don't know, GC. You'll have to tell me. Sure. So that movie is The Birth of a Nation, mm. a 1915 movie uh, that I suppose you might call it sort of propaganda for the Klan. Right. It's Not infamous. It's yeah, infamous. right. Curiously, as far as I can tell from some Westlaw searches, Birth of a Nation actually might be the most cited movie in Supreme Court opinions. It appears in three of them. Justice Thomas cited the movie for much the same purpose that Justice O'Connor did in an earlier case called Capital Square Review versus Panette. And it also appears as an aside in a quote about legislative history 
uh, in the case National Endowment for the Arts versus Finley. Oh, very interesting. Hmm. Well, maybe that can be a, a good uh, research question for any of our listeners. If you uh, know of a, another movie that's cited more frequently, send us an email and let us know. By all means. All right, number four, Zach. Justice Kagan referred to this famous science fiction series in a dissenting opinion in Lockhart versus the United States, a case about how to interpret a particular statute. I have no, <laughs> no idea, GC. So uh, it was Star Wars. Ah. Um, so she said – Kagan made the point about how to interpret a statute, and she said if somebody comes to you and says, I hope to meet an actor, director, or producer – Involved in the new Star Wars movie, you would understand that the phrase involved in the new Star Wars movie meant uh, or applied to that whole list of things, actor, producer, or director, and not just the last item in the list. Got it. Well, I was a little thrown because I think Lockhart is a uh, criminal case, right? Yes, that, that is correct. <laughs> that is correct. Got it. Final question, uh, and it is a hard one. Once in a while, living Supreme Court justices make appearances in movies. So on a previous trivia, we mentioned how uh, Justice Harry Blackman, after he retired, uh, played Justice Joseph Story in the movie Armistad. Uh, the most recent Supreme Court cameo occurred in the 2019 Lego Movie 2. <laughs> Some high-quality cinema, I am sure. Do you know who the uh, justice was? I do. Uh, well, as you know, uh, my significant other is a first grade uh, teacher, so I do have some familiarity with the Don't Lego blame movie. your your low quality movie tastes on your significant other, Zach. Ooh, GC, are you <laughs> calling Lego Movie low quality? Lego Ooh. Movie Two. Lego Movie One was a tour de force. All right, all right. Well, I can see you're you're keen to ignite a little controversy today <laughs> uh, on the podcast. That's okay. Uh, but I think it was uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg who uh, who had a Lego cameo in that movie. That is exactly right. Now, she did not do the voice for the uh, Lego figurine, but she did have to approve the use of her likeness. And Lego went on to make a Justice Ginsburg Lego figure, which I'm sure uh, many Supreme Court fans have bought somewhere. You know, it could make a great uh, Christmas stocking stuffer, I suppose. For the nerdy lawyer in your life. <laughs> Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS 101 and email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.